Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Anita Sharma. I'm with the BBA's Delivery of Legal Services section, along with my colleague, Nicole Mareda. Thank you all for joining us on this very rainy um, and cold day. It's an honor to welcome you into the space and to have you join in this important conversation around trauma and chronic stress, uh, especially for those of us who are practicing in legal services. Thank you so much to Kathleen Flinton and to Anna Mancuso for your work in this field and for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. Nicole and I would all like to welcome you and thank you and thank everyone at the BBA who made this session possible. A big special thank you to Noah Williams, Sections and Community Affairs Assistant for helping us put the event together. So um, as I mentioned last week, this um, I've worked with Kathleen and Anna through my work at the PEAR Project where they have both supported hundreds of PEAR clients, asylum seekers who are survivors of violence. Um, and they both also led vicarious trauma and self-care training for the PEAR staff. So I'd like to share a little bit about Kathleen and Anna's distinguished backgrounds and then just talk a little bit about uh, today's session, which is uh, part two of our trauma training. So Kathleen Flinton is an assistant professor of practice at Boston College School of Social Work. In addition to teaching, she maintains a private practice providing therapy to survivors of torture and trafficking, does clinical supervision and consultation. She has over 20 years of experience in working with survivors of trauma. Her area of expertise is in cross-cultural trauma treatment with a specialization in working with refugees and asylum seekers. She holds a BA from Vassar College, an MSW from Simmons School of Social Work, and a Master's of Arts and Religion from the Yale Divinity School. She is a recognized national expert in the treatment of torture and is a qualified expert witness in federal immigration court. Previously, Kathleen was a lecturer at Boston University School of Social Work and served as an associate clinical director at Boston Medical Center, Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights. Welcome, Kathleen. And then Anna Mancuso is a licensed clinical social worker specializing in trauma recovery with an expertise in working with refugees, asylum seekers, and survivors of torture. She's an adjunct lecturer at the Boston University School of Social Work and teaches graduate level courses focusing on clinical trauma work. She was formerly at Boston Medical Center, um, Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights, where she provided long-term therapy to survivors of torture and related trauma and wrote psychological evaluations in, in support of many, many asylum seekers. She has experience in working with survivors of interpersonal violence at the Center for Violence Prevention and Recovery at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Hospital. Anna received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania, Master's of Social Work from Simmons School of Social Work, and a Master's of Science in Population and International Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. So last week um, was, our, was part one of our trauma training session, and it was really just sort of a, a foundational session where Kathleen and Anna went over uh, helping us understand sort of um, trauma and chronic stress as a form of trauma and its impact, the impact of chronic toxic stress on the body, central nervous system and brain. And so today we're going to kind of jump off of and, and build on that um, foundational training that we've had. And Kathleen and Anna will talk about, um, you know, what do we do with this knowledge? So now we have a term we can put behind maybe some of the things that we're feeling um, the sense of kind of constantly being revved up, um, being in hypo arousal, hyper arousal, arousal. And what do we do with this? You know, what do we do with um, making change and, and helping us sort of understand that um, we can build, we can build off of this, we can build resilience, we can adopt long-term skills um, to help regulate our central nervous system. We can work on stress management so we can all thrive in our work. So uh, I had mentioned before, and, and I had never really thought about these terms, chronic stress, toxic stress, uh, and I'd never really seen it as a form of trauma until last year when I actually went on sabbatical and what I thought would be a very relaxing, um, you know, rejuvenating period was actually quite difficult. And, and that's when I started to learn about the impact of, of chronic and, and toxic stress, um, in addition to sort of like our own personal trauma, like carrying your own trauma and where that shows up 
in um, the workplace. So I'm really, really excited to welcome Kathleen and Anna and, and to also learn more about how we can build resilience and build that toolkit for our own self-care. So thank you so much, everyone, and Kathleen and Anna, I will pass it on to you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here on a rainy, gloomy day. Um, so today's presentation is called The Impact of Chronic and Toxic Stress, Befriending and Tending to Your Central Nervous System. We hope that you'll leave here today um, with some new information related to the following objectives. We hope that understanding more about our window of tolerance and the regulation skills that go along with that, um, deepening our understanding of the nervous system states, so understanding your zone and strategies to improve that vagal response, understand how mindfulness helps improve communication with ourselves, and how to use our body regulation to manage transitions between work and life outside of work. We did just wanna take a moment just to briefly touch back on what we had talked about last week, um, just so we have a little a bit of a foundation going into today, um, really moving more from a theoretical background more to, okay, great, <laughs> but what does that mean in terms of skills? What do I do when I'm quote unquote stuck in one particular place? So we, we went over the window of tolerance. The window of tolerance is a way to conceptualize how we manage our so-called big feelings. You know, what do we, um, how do we respond when we're feeling something like uh, sadness or anger? You know, do we go um, up to a hyperarousal zone, which is more of a, a, a revving up of the system, agitation, irritability, kind of that fight or flight response? Do you go down to the frozen response? hypoarousal, which looks like numbing, avoidance, depression, sometimes hopelessness. And you know, how big is that window? How, how big is that zone um, of optimal of optimal arousal? We also have our, our nervous system states, our green, yellow, and red zones. Um, green is where we are, um, our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous systems are balanced. Um, our yellow zone is really that get up and go, that certain level of activation. As we said last time, sometimes we need that certain level of activation depending on what we're doing. Um, that red zone is kind of that rest and digest. We also sometimes need that. Sometimes it feels good to flop on the couch, right? But to what extent is that showing up um, in other places where maybe we don't need that red zone? Um, getting stuck in one of those zones um, leaves us without that flexibility of response. We ideally really want to be able to move more fluidly through those zones, depending on the setting and what's required of us. And then we'd have our default mode network, which is an area of our brain. And that kind of lights up and often brings out our harsh inner critic. Um, it may become oriented to seeking thread and finding comfort in that um, in that area um, and um, struggles with ambiguity. So today we're gonna we're gonna take those concepts and we are going to um, um, bring them into the skill zone. Um, and so we are focusing on getting to know that nervous system, learning skills to bring regulation. When you understand where you are, then you have a better understanding of what do you need um, in order to respond to um, in order to get you back into, say, a window of tolerance or a green zone and allowing for that flexibility of response. I'm going to turn over to Kathleen. All right, great. Thank you, Anna. So our hope for today is for you to have four specific skills um, for you to think about and build on at the end of our time. Um, any just like we talked about last week, any one of the things we're talking about today could be a couple of hours in and of itself. And um, our, our hope today is to have to have you leave here, as, as I said, with, with those kind of four foundational skills in place, but also thinking about how you manage the impact of stress and trauma on yourself in a, in a deeper and broader way. So, um, you know, we're not focusing on, um, you know, exercise, hydration, and sleep, you know, all those things are all important, but we're really looking to sort of take these, these concepts of understanding our neuro neurobiology and then really understanding the why behind why we do the things that we do to manage our stress and to perhaps bring some new ideas to you about what that might look like for yourself. So um, just another visual on the window of tolerance. Um, we will send this, this um, slide deck out to you so that you have this, but we wanted to just bring another visual to you 
um, with a little bit more detail about what it is when you what it looks like when you're in your window of tolerance and what it looks like when you're outside. And one of the things we had asked you to reflect a little bit on is like, what do you look like when you're starting to get near your edges of your window? And what do you look like when you're outside? So being able to know your cues is the first thing to being able to understand what you need to do in response to them. Um, of really critical importance as we think about our central nervous system is that when you're in that green zone, when you're in your window of tolerance, you are you are socially engaged. That social engagement system is online and you're here and connected to the here and now. And so as we move through the skills for today, the th one of the things you're gonna hear over and over and over again is that con social connection and the being able to be connected to the present moment. So what do we wanna do with our window of tolerance? Well, the first thing is we wanna think about how to widen the window of tolerance. Um, chronic stress, trauma, make it really, really narrow. So things that are associated with, other, with, with the past or feel really high stress or high risk to us, throw us outside the window. Once you get it nice and wide, you wanna have the ability to move fluidly between the states, depending on what the context calls. As Anna mentioned, like sometimes we need that yellow zone and we wanna be able to move into it, but then to be able to move with flexibility back into the window of tolerance when that yellow state is no longer needed. And we wanna be responding to what's happening now rather than to signals from the past, whether that's the buildup of chronic and toxic stress over the time, or cues that are associated with your own trauma experience or highly stressful situations from your practice in the past. So what does this look like? So we the, the first skill we wanna talk about today is developing what we call a diversified skill set. So this is based on the concept that what you do in response to a bad day to re-regulate yourself when you're outside is different than the skills that you have in order to keep yourself at a nice, good baseline of regulation. So keeping your window nice and wide and keeping yourself in it requires one skill set. Getting yourself back into your window of tolerance once you're out requires a different. So we think of these um, as proactive, like maintenance is, is proactive reactive skills, the skills to pull you back in, um, in response to having to come out. And then sometimes skills are both reactive and proactive. And so they fit in, in more than one category. So the three different buckets worth we conceptualize these in are self-care skills, self-rescue skills, and self-preservation skills. And I'm going to go through what each one, what each one, what we mean by each one and what the function of each one is. And so this is really sort of thinking beyond self-care. It's not just taking care of yourself, but realizing that there's self-care skills, but then there's these other two skill sets that we need in order to be able to maintain our regulation. So starting with self-care. So within this framework, self-care is a, the, is a, I sort of think of these as a list or maybe asking you to generate a list for yourself as, as we're talking today of the intentional practices you have that build a foundation for sustaining you. Restaining body regulation, good physical health, good mental health, good relationships. It's that set of skills that's going to help to make your window of tolerance nice and wide. So you have a lot of room to be able to move up and down within it without moving outside of it. So these, what do you need in order to kind of be functioning at your best? For some folks, that's regular exercise, connecting to particular people and relationships, um, tending to nutrition, maybe getting good sleep, thinking about your intake of sugar, alcohol, or other, other substances. So what does that foundational skill set look like for you over time? And how do you bring intentionality to making sure that you have regularity with those practices? In addition to that, Having contact with sources of spiritual renewal is really, really important when you have a hard, hard job or a high stress job or a high trauma exposure job. Um, how do you connect to something that's greater than yourself? So what brings you to the work that you are doing? Um, Anna and I always kind of come to the question like, why are we putting ourselves through this? I think is is um, one of the, the foundational questions behind um, our work. And that the and the answer is that there's something greater than ourselves that we come into contact with through the work that we do. So what is that piece of spiritual renewal for you? 
How do you connect to something greater than yourself? And how do you have experiences in your life of intentional practices that connect you back to the source of motivate you to do what you do? So it might be connected to your community, to your family, um, maybe having a particular client or case experience in the past that really motivates you and thinking how to kind of remember that and make contact with that. We want to engage in these self-care practices with intentionality and frequency, right? They are your baseline baseline operating system that you want to tend to. And again, as I mentioned, the goal is to widen and maintain your window of tolerance. The second bucket of self-rescue skills are the activities that you engage in kind of after a bad day. So we think of this as like the plane is going down, the oxygen mask has dropped, and you need to put your oxygen mask on. And what do we know about your... Oxygen mask, um, for those of you who have kids and travel with kids, you're always told to put your own mask on before you put somebody else's mask on. And so you need to kind of like have these this second skill set in order to have that oxygen mask available to, to you when you need it. And oftentimes when we make this differentiation, folks find that what they thought were their self-care skills are actually their self-rescue skills. Um, that when they think about self-care, they're really thinking about I've had a rough day. What is it that I do to re-regulate myself? So within this window of tolerance framework, this is when we're really close to our edges um, or outside of our window and sort of knowing that you're getting there or are there and what do you need to re-regulate? Your self-care practices sometimes also might function as your self-rescue practices, um, but these tend to be a little bit more immediate a little bit more intense in bringing regulation. Um, it might mean disconnection. Again, it might mean kind of going out for a run, um, making yourself a cup of tea, talking to a particular person, but differentiating the function between what you're doing and understanding the why becomes important in helping the skill to be as effective as it can be for what you need in that moment. And then the third bucket here is self-preservation. Um, and this third bucket really comes out of conversations that um, we've had with social work students over time who have said, there's a whole there's a whole nother thing that I have to engage in in order to sustain myself and my practice over time. And that we're coining self-preservation. So sometimes we need to engage in skills in order to protect our sense of self and our sense of integrity. Like our stress buildup has become so toxic or the trauma load or the trauma exposure that we're carrying becomes so overwhelming that it starts it starts to bring a become a threat to our core sense of ourselves and who we are and how we make meaning and the integrity of ourselves so this self preservation um you can think of as sort of like the emergency ripcord and sometimes we need to pull this emergency ripcord in order to be able to stay in the work so Anita, when you've spoken last week and again this week about your sabbatical and what your experience was like during your unexpected experience during your sabbatical, you're really talking about moving into a state of self-preservation and needing to do a piece of work in order to stay in the work um, and to maintain that sense of self in the work over time. So the first tool here is how do you do your self-care, self-rescue, and self-preservation? How does it help you to widen your window of tolerance, get back into your window? And what do you notice when you think about your own skill set? Is there a particular area that is um, a, a need for you to give a little bit of additional attention, attention and work on? All right, I'll turn it back over to Anna now to talk about our nervous system states. All right, so we're going to go back to talking about our nervous system states um, and thinking about how to respond um, to where we are, what state we're in. So this you may, if you attended last week, you'll, you might recognize this slide. Um, this is the idea of being stuck on yellow. Just briefly, yellow is the, um, is a sympathetic nervous system response. That's that level of activation, hyper arousal, um, as Kathleen just described, sort of at that top of that window of tolerance. Um, it often may manifest in a variety of different ways. These were some ideas that, um, we had, um, thinking about, of a hyperfixation on control um, as a way to kind of comfort and respond to some of those internal sensations. Um, irritability, really that revving up um, of um, certain um, systems within the body, like blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera. It has a fight orientation where you might feel a little bit more primed to 
to discuss certain things and feel a little bit more free to do things. Um, it may also have a, a bit of a flight um, orientation as well. Um, hypervigilance, um, and I know that um, that was a question last time about what hypervigilance looks like. Hypervigilance is the idea of being very alert. You know, like we are going to double check, triple check, quadruple check every single detail in, a, a, I guess a legal term would be a brief, <laughs> um, you know, double check and all those things with a hyper focus on wanting to make sure we don't make any mistakes. And sometimes that hypervigilance is really needed in certain more high stakes situations. Um, sometimes you, you really do need to be triple checking certain details, but it may manifest as um, kind of being a more pervasive problem, even at times where you don't necessarily need that hypervigilance. Um, seeking out stressful situations because it matches kind of what the body sensations are experiencing. Um, working constantly, you know, when you have that that kick of um, stress, um, you know, it, it propels you to get to get things done. <laughs> um, and that also may um, tip over into really working constantly. But just to note, this is also sometimes a mechanism of avoidance that sometimes um, that's also a way of numbing sometimes to um, other things that are that are going on. So really thinking about yellow as a revving up of the system, blood pressure is up, heart rate is up, we are, we are moving, we are a little bit agitated. We have a lot of energy here um, to respond to certain situations. So <laughs> what do we need to do when we are, we are quote unquote stuck on yellow? So this is an idea of if we can really tune into what's happening in the body and how, say for example, hypervigilance manifests from a, from a neurobiological um, perspective um, or how irritability uh, manifest or a fight response manifest, we know that what we need to do is actually downregulate. Downregulate means that we want to regulate the system. So we really want that balance of the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And so when you're really revved up and really activated, we need to, we need to um, uh, inhibit that and bring it back down. So that's what we mean by downregulate. Again, thinking about what's happening in your body and tuning into that and paying attention to what, what kind of a skill is needed. So these are some um, skills that Kathleen and I thought of. Um, these are easy ones to do. Um, I shouldn't say easy. They they can be done at work, but the, the, the hard part is, is noticing what you need and then doing it. Um, so the first is breathing. Um, if you've spent any time with a social worker, you know that we we talk a lot about breathing. And the reason is, is because it works. <laughs> um, and it's, it but... Oftentimes it's hard when you're feeling really activated to notice that what you actually need when that heart rate is really going is to take a moment and do some deep breathing. So belly breathing, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, you know, when that um, sympathetic nervous system is activated, you really want to lengthen out the breath so that um, it brings it deep into the diaphragm, which actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So you want to be bringing that breathing, doing some deep breathing um, and thinking about, for example, you know, in, imagining your stomach being in, inflating as a balloon. The other idea is box breathing. Box breathing is the idea of of like say holding in a breath or taking in a breath and then you're going to hold it. So I'm making a box with my pen, um, holding it for a moment, then you're going to breathe it out and then you're going to hold it again. So sometimes it helps to have that visualization of imagining a box that you're creating with your breath. Sometimes I tell my kids to imagine um, breathing when they're breathing in to imagine going up the staircase of a slide and then you're breathing out, you're going down the slide. For those of you who have kids, that might help too. Um, so again, taking the moment to actually breathe is, is the challenging part, okay? The next is that shifting of the body experience um, brings in a sense of regulation. Oftentimes it's going outside. Sometimes you can't go outside. It might be taking a moment to look out the window, but it's a shifting of that body experience. It's getting up. It's going to get the water. It's not just about the water. It's also about the shifting of that body experience to be able to take that in. Um, walking. Walking helps to regulate um, the sympathetic nervous system. Um, if you can and you have time, maybe not while you're at work, but after work, it's yoga. It's running. Um, those body-based experience, there's a reason why movement is really helpful and it doesn't need to be an hour and a half yoga class. It can be two minutes of stretching. And sometimes that's also the challenge is remembering that it doesn't have to be a major thing. It just can be for a moment or two um, to help downregulate. 
So also what we call grounding. Grounding is a, is a way to tune into what's happening in the body and stay present in the present moment. Um, so there's a idea of sensory grounding. This is, um, it's called five, four, three, two, one. So what you do is it's really, um, taking into account all of our five senses. So it would be taking a moment and saying, imagining five things you can see four things you can feel three things you can hear two things you can smell and one thing you can taste or maybe imagine tasting. It doesn't take long, but a, it's distracting <laughs> and B, it really brings you into your body and really thinking about where you are in the present moment. And that also helps to, um, to slow down the system. Um, tactile, the idea of um, putting feet on the ground. I'm sitting right now, but um, it would be like the idea of actually paying attention, putting my feet on the ground, paying attention to what the ground feels like, paying attention to what my chair feels like. You can't see, but I have chair arms, so I can, I'm holding them right now. Taking a moment for some people that might find holding something. Um, that's why fidgets um, and squishy balls and things like that are helpful because they actually help to bring you into your into your body in the present moment, which helps to balance out the, the um, autonomic nervous system. Um, on the flip side, we have um, stuck on red. Um, stuck on red is the idea of being hypo aroused or where the parasympathetic nervous system, um, which is that, um, which is the part of the autonomic nervous system that, um, deactivates, it inhibits the sympathetic nervous system response. Oh, go ahead, Nicole. So we have a question just for clarification, if we could just quickly repeat sure. the numbers for the sensory grounding experience, what they represent. Oh, sure. So, um, it's, it's five things you can see. Four things you can feel, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste or imagine tasting. And I actually think some people might do it five things you can feel, but that's fine. <laughs> the, the point is to engage the senses. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. So stuck on red. Stuck on red is thinking about what does it feel like in the body when the parasympathetic nervous system is is really taken over. And again, there's no balance or the balance is off. Um, it often feels like depression, um, you know, really like um, that psychomotor retardation where you're feeling really slowed down, um, a low performance because you, you don't have that level of activation that you might need, right? A disconnection from the self and from others. That's a form of like numbing um, and avoidance and disconnection. Um, absenteeism is because that represents withdrawal. And again, numbing and avoiding certain situations, um, missing things, dropping things, um, not really finding that lack of meaning in the work, which represents a certain sense of hopelessness that might be manifesting in a different way. Um, and oftentimes frequently getting sick, um, which is a somatic um, response um, to stress and chronic stress. So for this, for this, um, when you're stuck on red, we need a, a we need a, a different set of skills. Although you'll see that some of them are related. So again, thinking about what's happening in the body, imagining a sense of withdrawal, avoidance, a slowing down, a deactivation. What we need here is to be revved up, right? We need uh, um, to get that heart rate up. We need to get our blood pressure up. We need to get the blood flow going and get a little bit more moving. So one thing that's very effective is a temperature change. So that really that gets your um, your blood pressure going, <laughs> um, your blood pressure really going. So a temperature change, um, ice, cold drinks. I oftentimes, um, sometimes have clients like hold an ice cube, take a wet, um, washcloth and like put it on your forehead. Um, there it, it, um, is, it revs up the system. Um, it also feels good. Um, okay. Grounding. We talked, we talked about grounding. Grounding is a skill set that can be used, um, kind of all the time. Um, and it really helps if you are, um, um, hypo aroused because again, it's bringing you into the, the present moment and into your body. And that's what we need. Humming, um, singing or oming. Um, there's a reason why um, people feel good when they sing in the shower. It, um, stimulates the diaphragm. And stimulates also the the um, muscles of the mouth and the throat, which um, which stimulates a uh, vagal response and, and revs up the sympathetic nervous system. I'm not going to ohm here because I'm by myself up here, but I um, there's you know that's um, if you've ever taken a yoga class and you're in shavasana, they have you ohm after. That's because you were just lying down 
And the parasympathetic nervous system was kind of bringing you into that place of rest. And then guess what? The reality is you have to leave the class now. So we're going to have, we're going to ohm again to bring you um, to rev up that system again. Okay. So that's an easy one to do as well. Listening to music, um, it brings a uh, mid-tonal range and rhythm. It um, stimulates, again, the um, sympathetic nervous system and activates the body. Um, and social connection. If we bring it back to that window of tolerance, too, is that we need pets and people. Um, social connection is a way of engaging um, the um, it, it, it brings us into our window of tolerance um, and also activates the sympathetic nervous system um, and the vagal response. So pets and people is a good one to do. That's why sometimes people feels good to like exchange a meme with somebody, right? All right, so these um, could be layered on. Um, these these skills could be layered on with thinking about self care. Think self care are perhaps the the um, regulation skills that we need to to keep us in that window of tolerance. Self rescue skills are regulation skills that we might be using in response to kind of what's happening in our body. Um, and then sometimes we need um, to really be thinking about how to um, be proactive um, or thinking about that the relationship between being proactive and reactive. All right, so tool number two is thinking about regulation, thinking about if you need to be going up, thinking about if you need to be going down and knowing where you are and what you need, and then actually um, using a skill to, to tend to that. All right. So next we're gonna talk a little bit about mindfulness of, you know, it's a great buzzword. We hear it all the time. What does it actually mean? Um, and turning, remembering back to that default mode network that we talked a little bit about and that harsh inner critic voice and the messages that we tell ourselves. So what is mindfulness actually? And um, it, there's a mindfulness industrial complex, I think that has sprung up around mindfulness practices. Um, but really what it is, is being connected to where you are, to the moment that you're in, um, or being within your window of tolerance. And in working with survivors of trauma and thinking about all the different approaches there are um, and the treatment approaches, one of the things we see repeated over and over and over again is helping folks to be able to tolerate being connected to their, their present moment experience. Um, so that might be their experience of the body, it might mean staying present with hard, intense feelings, um, being able to stay present with hard memories. And so it's, it is, it is a critical foundational nugget that we see over and over and over again. So how do you stay connected to the present moment so that you can be in your window of tolerance and all of those upregulating and downregulating skills that, that Anna just walked us through are all skills of mindfulness of coming into the present moment. So I think one of the questions for you to really think a little bit about is when are the times when it's hard for you to be connected to the present moment? And what are the skills that you already have that you help that help to keep you connected to the present moment? Like what's already working um, and how do you build on build on that and then add to it in order to stay in the window of tolerance? So. The default mode network we talked a little bit uh, we talked about last week again it's a it's an emerging area of un understanding within the brain that we had this like large scale network that lights up during times when we're not task positive when our mind is at drift and that for folks who have a lot of who have, might have trauma experiences or experiencing toxic stress that that can be the voice of that harsh inner critic that lights up during those that we hear during those times when our brains are not focused on a task. Um, we also know that it becomes over oriented towards threat orientation from the way that it's wired um, and oftentimes leading folks who might be first responders or working in really high stress jobs. Um, to be in in situations that feel very familiar and very comfortable to them because it is where their kind of default mode network is wired and oriented towards. So how do we start to quiet this down a little bit? I think is the first is the first question. Um, so we're starting to understand that that default mode network gets quieted down during a couple of different experiences. First is times when we're connected, right? So pets and people, as Anna just talked about, you know, if, if this, if the default mode network is about your embodied sense of self over time, and it's been wired to core beliefs about self or messages about self that are not great, 
when we come into connection with someone else, we are no longer us. We are us connected, right? And so that's part of why connection, why social engagement helps to quiet down that default mode network because you are now connected to another nervous system. And that brings with it some regulation and some suppression of the default mode network. We're also starting to learn um, that experiences of awe, like those moments where you just have this like overwhelming sense of awe, that there's something just so much greater than you that you are witnessing or connected to, also helps to quiet down that that default mode network. Um, There is a piece on NPR um, earlier this week that talks about awe. I guess there's a new book coming out about experiences of awe, but he actually in the interview talked about this being um, quieting the default mode network. Times when we're connected to a sense of community, right? It's not just me, but us, like I'm part of something, helps to quiet down that that harsh interchronic and and default mode network. So when do you connect to something greater than yourself, I think is one of the questions. And this ties back to engaging in those spiritual processes of self-care that help to keep your window of tolerance nice and wide. Is it organized religion? Spirituality, is it walking in nature? Are you creative? Is it art or music? Do you do team sports where you are in connection and experiencing that sense of community that quiets down that harsh inner critic focus on self? What are the moments in your legal practice when you feel connected, awe, or part of a sense of community? Um, That's quieting down your default mode network as well. And we're also seeing now that there is a really big emerging practice happening around trauma treatment with the use of psychedelics. Um, So you may have heard a little bit about this. There's um, a lot happening in the Boston area in particular around using psychedelics. And what happens, why do psychedelics work is we're finding that they they quiet down the default mode network. So they allow for that harsh inner critic, that over threat orientation to be suppressed so that then folks can start to process and experience their trauma in a different way. And folks come out of psychedelic work feeling really well regulated and well connected, like the sense of connection to self universe that they're experiencing through experience with psychedelics. So you keep hearing us talking about this pro-social connection, this pro- why connection matters, I think is what we wanted to address. So being pro-social, um, that social engagement system, quieting the default mode network, and that really as beings, we have strategies that are about trying to be connected. We are pack animals, we are wired for connection. We also wanna have a sense of belonging, a sense of mattering, and a sense of meaning making. And so we all have strategies throughout our life that we've developed in order to have to feel belonging, connection, mattering, and in your work, finding meaning making. And that when we have these pro-social connections, it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and helps to suppress, again, that default mode network. So here, how does this tie, how does this all tie in? So this kind of brings us back to this question that we're always asking, why are we putting ourselves through this, right? I know we've all spent tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to get where we've gotten. So we have that that fiduciary um, responsibility as well, but, but why put yourself through such hard work? So the question for you is how much of your stress or toxic stress is in service of belonging, mattering and feeling connected? What is the motivation and the meaning that you find in your work? And where does that make you feel this sense of mattering connection or belonging, making a difference, having an impact? And so we develop these default strategies for getting these needs met for belonging, mattering, and feeling connected. And when we have toxic stress or trauma, the strategies that we've developed in order to get these needs met actually further dysregulate us, right? Because they've been wired in our nervous system through adverse experiences, through trauma, and through um, trying to get needs met, That strategies that might not have been successful. And that can translate, these default strategies can translate professionally into taking on too much not being able to say no. Like if my work is what really makes me feel like I mattered, if I never mattered growing up um, or in my family system, then I'm going to continue to to take to say yes and to take on more and more because that's helping me to get that need met of feeling like I matter, of feeling like I'm connected. 
um, having porous boundaries, like this is how it can manifest itself professionally. And so the question we put to you is, do you have these default strategies that are needs, these needs fulfilling strategies that manifest professionally? And is there another strategy that you can think about that can meet that same need that decouples it from the stress pathway that's, that's created it? So what does that mean and what does it look like? Well, if I'm getting a sense of mattering through my work and I'm constantly saying yes and taking on more and more clients, how can I find a sense of mattering in my work that's decoupled from the stress? So does that mean mentoring other folks who are coming along in the same work earlier in their career? Is it um, being able to be a professional support to colleagues through coaching? Um, teaching, you know, Anna and I both teach, and um, that's another way of having impact in the work that is decoupled, decoupled from stress, except for during grading. But generally speaking, it is not as stressful as having um, a full eight, nine hours of, of clinical work in the course of a day. So what are your strat what are your needs that you have met through your work? And can you think about auxiliary or additional strategies that decouple it from the stress? So tool number three is for you to examine your strategy. Is it seeking connection, belonging, mattering, or meaning making? And is there another pathway? I know we all just can't like up and step out of the, the default pathways that are stress associated, but I think finding it in other ways helps to bring a rebalancing to the central nervous system so that you are working on that flexibility of response relative to and specific to each context. All right, thanks. All right, and for our last um, tool, we're going to talk about being present and managing transitions. All right, so let's talk a bit about managing context changes um, and the challenges that are sometimes are sometimes here when we are trying to be present in life outside of work. Um, it's difficult, um, often because of the impact of trauma exposure, especially depending on the type of work you do, the type of legal services that you do. It's hard to transition from a space where maybe that sympathetic nervous system, that yellow zone is um, a plus, um, helps potentially um, get work done. It's hard to transition back into spaces where we really need to be more socially engaged, where we really need to, ha um, to have a wider window of tolerance to manage the different challenges or the different, um, the different things that come up, depending on our different role. So when we think about transitioning in and out of workspaces, those context changes present a challenges to the nervous system. Who's had the experience of being in a high stakes situation at work and then going home and the environment is radically different in the way that feels very jarring. Um, so a way to tend to this is to think about how to develop routines and rituals for transitioning. Um, body cues will become associated with the shift and then the brain will follow, you know. So what we mean by that is if we can teach the body that we're transitioning, if we can teach the body that, OK, we're going from work to say home, um, the brain will begin to follow and begin to respond um, accordingly a bit over time. So shift from trying to change our thoughts to letting the nervous system lead. Sometimes we got two in our heads. We're really trying to look at this from a, using our prefrontal cortex. Um, and maybe our prefrontal cortex isn't particularly engaged right now because our sympathetic nervous system is taking over and we're still hyper aroused. And we're trying to say, okay, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. But we often know that like no amount of insight often can calm down that alarm bell. And what we really need to do is work at it more from what we sometimes refer to as the bottom up, where we're really thinking about it more responding to body-based cues first. And then the thoughts will hopefully come with it after. So these are some common transition strategies. I, but I want to note that um, I know that for, for myself, I one time... Um, had Kathleen asked me sort of how I transitioned home from work. And I said, oh, I put on my, you know, my, my comfy pants. Um, and she was saying, you know, it's a body-based, it's a body-based cue. And it wasn't until I began to think about it and bring in a level of, of intentionality to it that I really actually began to, to notice a, a change. So thinking about this as 
bringing in that level of intentionality, which goes back to um, one of the um, the basis for self-care skills, is bringing in intentionality um, and it brings in a, a certain set of mindfulness is acknowledging what's happening in the present moment um, to help um, bring the um, the thoughts with us. So sorry to um to activate um, the the body based cues and then bring the brain along. So one thing's changing changing clothes. There's a reason why that often um, helps people. It's not just about getting more comfortable. It helps to to transition us out of work. Some people like to shower, wash their hands, wash their face, do something with um, water. Um, again, thinking about those temperature changes and different sensory. Um, information that that helps to bring. Um, commute. I think that a lot of us found during COVID that we, oddly enough, we missed our commutes. Um, it was a time to unpack the day. It was maybe it was a time to listen to a podcast, music, you know, be activated by a different type of environment. Um, but thinking about the commute as a way to transition um, can be very helpful. Thinking about what you do on your commute. You know, do you listen to music? Do you listen to a podcast? Do you have maybe a phone call with a particular person? What about it on the commute helps to um, helps you to transition from work to home? And again, thinking about examining it um, and bringing in some intentionality there as well. Some people find cooking very helpful. Um, exercise. Those are some transition strategies. So think about what, what you do to go from work to home. It might be something on this list. Again, layering in that intentionality, it might be something a little bit different, but think about what signals it's sending to your body about going from work to home um, or work to your, to your home space, whatever that might look like for you. There's also um, situation-specific high-stress transitions. Uh, I think we are both firm believers that certain situations, we can do a lot of deep breathing, we can do a lot of things, but the reality is, is that there's certain settings that are high stress. Um, and if you have the ability to predict that and to know ahead of time that it might be a day where um, there's going to be the potential for um, higher trauma exposure, there's going to be the potential for a higher level of stress, maybe it's a court, you know, for me, it might've been a particular type of client, um, it's a particular type of meeting. And knowing ahead um, can be very helpful because it's anticipating how the body might respond and anticipate how you might respond to how your body's responding, if you can follow that. So how do you dip into your self-rescue and self-preservation skills with intentionality? How do you plan around that? How do we acknowledge ahead of time that it might be a day that you should um, have a plan in place to talk to a particular person, to think about what your commute's going to look like, to think about having a buffer of 15 minutes of when you walk in the door before, um, in my particular case, I have to I have to jump right into parenting. You know, how can we um, anticipate what we might need um, and respond accordingly? So we ca I call it a pre-mortem strategy. So it's like creating a specific ritual or skill set for these moments, um, acknowledging that they are high, you know, that they are high stress, um, and that you need a particular set of self-rescue skills or self, um, to respond in that moment um, to help you transition from whatever the situation is to whatever is going to happen after work. So this tool number four is really thinking about what is your transition strategy? What does that look like? How is that helping to send um, but cues to your body. How does it let the nervous system lead? Um, and how are you bringing in intentionality to that to help um, deepen your experience? Um, and these are um, sources for you um, based on a lot of the things that we've talked about today. Um, and I think now we should have some time for questions. So thank you yet again for such wonderful insight into all of the nervous system and trauma and how to respond to that. We do have a couple of questions coming in. The first one would be, how would one connect and find belonging for those who haven't had solid relational foundations because of familial dysfunction, upbringing, trauma, et cetera? Excellent question. <laughs> um, therapy, yay, is, is a good first start um, for trying to understand those experiences. And I think it's, um, you know, it can be <clears throat> having a lot of, of trauma in your family of origin really impacts one of the things that's so cruel about it is it impacts how we relate with other people for the rest of our lives. Um, and so trying to understand the impact of those experiences 
um, with a therapist who understands what we call complex or developmental or relational trauma is an important piece. Um, I think from a kind of professional and from a professional perspective, it's sort of understanding how if you didn't get those needs met or you have that impacted relationality, how some of that starts to get met through the work that you do and really kind of honoring that it's meeting that need and trying to do it in a way that then um, is is boundaried and life-giving for you as opposed to depleting. Because I think sometimes when your, your work is what's meeting those needs, it starts to kind of perpetuate its own level of harm. And so being able to have a relationship with the work that is honoring what it provides in a way that is life-giving for you as opposed to taking from you is important. Um, and, but I think, you know, everybody's specific life experience is their own and trying to understand your own specific life experience through therapy is is really, really important and very profound work. Um, so the next question is with music for the red zone, it said something about mid-tonal. What type of music is mid-tonal? Good question. Kathleen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe um, music with human voice is mid-tone. Yeah. Yeah. So. so this is this is based in the idea that our of kind of this the that polyvagal theory, and there's a video link in the sources um in the slide deck that like really high-pitched sounds like screaming are associated with potential danger or really, really low tones of like, you know, an animal running after you in the wild are associated with danger. And so kind of that mid-tonality, the range of human voice yeah. um, is sort of what helps to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system. But I also, if you're somebody that prefers like classical, I wouldn't, I wouldn't overthink it. I think it's the idea that it's, um, it's, it's still stimulating. Mm -hmm. So another question has come in. Do you have any recommendations for people who seem to experience symptoms of both yellow and red zone at the same time? That's um, often, often the case. I mean, we didn't get too into that just because of the scope of today, but really thinking about what it might look like, for example, when you're kind of sort of rapidly go from hyper aroused to hypo aroused, um, you know, and I think that that speaks often again to a narrow, um, window of tolerance. We were able to kind of vacillate pretty rapidly between those states. Um, and again, I think it's really paying attention to, cause that's often the case is people, you know, may present with both. And so again, it's really being in tune with what's happening in your body. When somebody describes to me, I feel physical anxiety. Okay. What does that mean? You know, is that, is that a tension in your chest? Is that a tightening up? Is that let's get specific here and think about, okay, then that probably suggests, for example, in that particular case, hyper, hyper arousal. And so what skills, what skill do you need right now to down, to down regulate? Other times, if somebody's describing themselves more as numb um, or disconnected, um, thinking about using upregulation skills. I, I, again, I think it's really paying attention to what's happening in the body, being specific about what you're feeling and what does that suggest from a neurobiological perspective, and then responding with a skill. And it's very common to have, you know, that's what, what we call a blended state. It's very, mm -hmm. it's a very common experience. And some people, you know, are like super in the yellow zone all week with, and then on the week, the weekends hit and they are there, they spend their weekends depressed. And it's like, well, it doesn't look like a clinical depression. If you're not depressed five days out of the week, yeah. it's really that like these different contexts, you move into different states and different contexts. And like that differentiation that Anna outlined is, is so important and it's also about like, regardless of which one you're at, they're both states of disconnection, right? Mm -hmm. From self and others. And so how do you aim for that green zone, right? Like aim for experiences that help to stimulate what your body's experience is when it is well-regulated. Um, and I know it's a very, it sounds very simple, but it's a very lofty, lofty goal.
So another question we just had come in, what is the best way to respond when a sudden incident happens that is traumatic during work hours, i.e. a difficult call with a client? Yep. Um, I think that this is where it is important to really think about what that diversified skill set is. And so in that particular case, that might be a, a time to really dip into those self-rescue skills. Um, you know, I use that example of kind of having a pre-mortem set of skills, but it, it applies here as well. It's thinking about what do you what do you do in response to that bad day? What do you do in response to that bad moment? What what skills do you have in place? Um, and how are you able to dip into that with intentionality? Because there's even something helpful about um, even if you can't predict it and it's reactive, if it's intentional um, and, and thought out as to what you need, often in those moments, that really also helps um, and feels good. And I think also sort of dispelling the myth that like if you just have the right skill set or you try hard enough, it's not going to impact you. I think part of this neuro understanding the neurobiology is really trying to normalize the fact that we have our bodies have normal reactions. And so tending to yourself, kind of riding the wave of how that's impacting you, seeking support, using those self-care and self-rescue skills, but also like acknowledging that we're humans and that sometimes we have to deal with really, really hard things and that that's okay for us to have reactions and that we need tending and care and support in those moments. Um, that's really shifting a narrative from like, push it down, push it away, pretend it's not happening. If you're tough enough, it's not going to bother you. When in reality, you can tend to it in the moment or it's going to it's going to show up someplace else, I think, is if you if you don't tend to it, it will find its way out. Another question about workplace supports, when we think about community care, in addition to self-care, how can a workplace better support these tools beyond just providing training such as this one? Are there ways the environment can be better set up to support this? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that much like um, the, you know, if we think about our individual response to stress and trauma, organizations um, also have a trauma response system, you know, and I think some organizations um, operate in a, in a hyper aroused zone and it's thinking about what, what's in those organizations that helps to foster social connection um, helps to foster regulation skills. Um, and what types of practices are in place that um, support people's efforts to um, have a more balanced response to work? That's a larger question, I think. <laughs> Is it possible for people with blended states, for example, have anxiety and depression at the same time to benefit from both kinds of stress adaptation techniques simultaneously? Yes, I, th I think do you mean thinking about both like upregulation and downregulation skills? I think that's what the question is asking. So benefiting from both types of Definitely. tools. Okay. Definitely. Not, I think the simple answer is, is skills are skills are helpful. Um, and so having a wide range of skills um, is very helpful. And again, it's, I think it's thinking about though, is this a moment, um, I see a lot of people with both anxiety and depression. It's thinking about, you know, what's what's manifesting right now um, and what do we need to respond to that's happening um, in the body? But certainly um, skills are helpful. So we're being mindful of time. Um, there's another that, um, Anita has posed, how might the pandemic have impacted our need for connection, belonging, mattering, meaning making, and where we may have used the workplace to fill this sense of community and support work-related stress? Um, yes, <laughs> I think is, is, is the answer. I mean, you know, I, I know I think about myself during those months where it was in some ways, it was a comfort to be able to disappear into a place where I felt competent. Um, when I had, you know, house full of kids who were really struggling and with needs that I couldn't, couldn't meet, it was, it felt really good to be at work sometimes, um, where I, I did feel connected and competent. And, um, and so I think 
that that also, but I think Anita, your comment also was about that kind of increasing the amount of work-related stress. That was the that was the that was the the bill that had to be paid, right? For that increased sense of connection. And so I think as we kind of transition back from being remote to in-person, as we think about how to kind of balance out and to let the stress levels start to fall, that became wired to the work during the pandemic, that it doesn't always have to be that anymore that it was for us during that time. So one last question, I know that we're at time, but do you have any advice for understanding or being tender to your harsh inner critic? Um, I don't know what Kathleen would say. I, I, I think it's about bringing an awareness to it and thinking about how to bring in self-compassion, um, which is a, um, a strategy that's often um, worked out through mindfulness of noticing where your, what your thoughts are, noticing where they go, noticing what those patterns are, trying not to assign judgment. It's like a great example is you try to do a meditation and then all of a sudden you think to yourself, why am I so bad at this? <laughs> you know, um, rather than focusing on what, you know, what's happening in your body, it's, it's trying to bring your mind back to that and, um, bringing in a sense of self-compassion. And I think we also talk to ourselves in ways we wouldn't talk to people we care about. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear that voice, how do you notice that and say, like, would I say that to somebody that I love? Like, how do I, how do I shift that? How do I respond back? Not trying to like negate it or make it go away, but how do you respond back with a message of how you would reframe that if you were hearing it from someone that you loved? How would you respond to them? Thank you so much, Kathleen and Anna, for your time today and sharing your knowledge about the central nervous system and, and everything. Now, if if for all the panelists and for all the participants who are still here, if this has brought up anything for you, there are resources available out there. Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers is a really excellent resource for lawyers dealing with trauma in this field. They have support groups. They have one-on-one -on -one counseling available. Um, and so I would highly recommend checking out their website and what services are available. Um, there's also uh, the helpline. It's 988. Is that the right number, Kathleen and Anna? 988 for the behavioral health line um, helpline. Um, so with that, I want to close and thank everyone for participating. Thank Anita for um, starting this conversation and bringing all of us together and Kathleen and Anna for your time and the BBA for hosting today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone.